Captain's personal log. I'm entering the ship's holodeck where images of reality can be created by our computer. Highly useful in crew training. Highly enjoyable when used for games and recreation. Welcome to $20 a Day, a podcast where we explore our favorite fictional holodeck characters of Star Trek, The Next Generation. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And Epi, which of our favorite fictional holodeck characters are we talking about this time? Well, I think we're uh, going to start with uh, perhaps, I would say the second most famous of all the fictional holodeck characters, and this is mm-hmm. Dixon Hill as portrayed by Captain Jean-Luc Picard, uh, in this case in the holodeck program, The Big Goodbye. Yep, we are starting off uh, early in the career of Dixon Hill. This is the the first appearance in Season 1, Episode 11 of Star Trek The Next Generation. This episode is, as you say, constructed around this character of Dixon Hill, who is a fictional 40s hard-boiled P.I., mm-hmm. um, and we'll talk more about the details that we learn about Dixon uh, as we get into the show. But a uh, couple things about the episode. This is written by Tracy Torme, uh, who either wrote or was involved in writing in some way every season one episode. Okay. So he is very literally the author of Dixon Hill, as we will also uh, learn. But this is this is very much a, a kind of a pastiche homage to Maltese Falcon, Big Sleep, Long Goodbye, hence the title. And apparently, a little piece of trivia here, uh, Dixon Hill was originally named Dixon Steel, but that was too close to Remington Steel, ah. which was running at the time, so it had to be changed. Also, uh, this was an Emmy award-winning episode of Star Trek. It won uh, a Emmy for costume design. Uh, I can see that, definitely. Yeah, uh, this, this episode was directed by Joseph Scanlon, um, first of four episodes of Next Generation that he directed, and he was just also one of those working directors of TV and TV movies all over the place. There's one shot in this that really jumped out at me that I'll that I'll mention when we get to it, but uh, overall, I think this is a high to very high episode of Star Trek. It is worth mentioning too, and this is a thing that. Uh... I stumbled on a little bit while watching it. If you're familiar with Star Trek Next Generation, which, of course, our listeners would be, uh, the uh, this is the first holodeck episode, right? I think the holodeck is in episodes, because I think in, in, like, Farpoint and stuff, like, they are on the holodeck. Right. Data. Yes, right. And so there's, there's a couple, like, moments in episodes previous to this where someone is on the holodeck for a reason. Right. Someone out there will correct us if we're wrong, but uh, I am pretty sure this is the first, like, here is an episode that is about how the holodeck works and interacts with the rest of the ship. Yes, because as we'll see, Picard is astounded by it in ways that jaded Star Trek viewers are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe we'll, we'll go ahead and, and get into the cold open because this is actually where yes. we learn about this. Hi everyone, Nathan here. Epi and I decided to have a little fun for this April 1st episode, and really ended up enjoying our conversation about another show we both really like. So we hope you give it a listen. Unfortunately, this alternate reality recording picked up some audio issues along the way, so apologies for the inconsistent sound quality. That said, we hope you enjoy our dive into Star Trek The Next Generation. But never fear, we will be back next time with our usual show about the Rockford Files. 
200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we say thank you to John Adamus, the writer next door. Find his go-to resources for storytellers and creatives who want to tell better stories at writernextdoor.com. Mike Gillis, a host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, The McLaughlin Group for Nerds, radiovsthemartians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, found at misdirectedmark.com. Lowell Francis, with his award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Adam Alexander, Chris, and Dave. And finally, big thank yous to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. We've recently updated our Patreon with new opportunities for sponsorship, so check out patreon.com slash 200 today and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. As all Next Generation episodes start, uh, I think almost all Star Trek episodes start, uh, we, we have our cold open where we come right into some action. So we start on the bridge with Riker giving a first officer's log about the general mission that they're on. They're making contact with this alien race, the Harada, who are insectoids and require a very specific greeting because their sense of honor and propriety is so intense. Um, if this greeting is not given with the precise pronunciation, there's going to be trouble. So, of course, Captain Jean-Luc Picard is the one who has to deliver this greeting. And so he's practicing in his uh, uh, ready room with Counselor Troy, who is coaching him through the difficult pronunciation. He's clearly been at it, working hard. She thinks he's overworking. Uh, maybe he needs a break. Yes. And that perhaps he should go get a little recreation on the upgraded mm-hmm. holodeck. So Picard gets a, a winsome look on his face <laughs> to say, ah, Dixon Hill. Yes. And I am with Picard. I'm a Dixon Hill fan. One of my favorite fictional, fictional detectives. Uh, but yeah, so that's just the, so it's an upgraded holodeck, which I think is the one line that accounts for all of the wonder that we see. You're right. So yeah, so that was our open. We go to our familiar credits and then start the show proper uh, on the holodeck in 1941, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I, I like the conceit here, which again is a little weird for the jaded Star Trek fan, but getting into the spirit of, oh, this is the first time they're doing this. The holodeck characters, and they do this differently in different episodes, but like the holodeck characters recognize who the real people are supposed to be. Mm-hmm but also recognize if they're not wearing the right clothes. Because <laughs> he comes in in his captain's uniform, and, I mean, uh, those look like pajamas. The year currently is 2018, and th- those still look like pajamas, right? Like that's <laughs> <laughs> We've been promised this fashion in our science fiction for 60 years now, and we still haven't achieved it. Full-body jumpsuits still have not come into fashion. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, maybe I'll give it a shot. Maybe I'll... <laughs> <laughs> well, and these are the like the really tight ones that they yes. couldn't. At some point in the show, they transitioned to more like human fit versions. Roddenberry had this vision of like everything. There are no wrinkles in Star Trek. Everything is like, right. <laughs> you know, so everything was super tight. Um, that is neither here nor there. Uh, there are, so there are a couple gags here where uh, so so Dixon Hill, uh, who's wearing the wrong clothes, comes into his office and his secretary um, busts his chops about uh, what did he lose a bet. Right. <laughs> I am a fan of the secretary. She doesn't get a whole lot of screen time in this. Yeah. But um, it's a, it's an ongoing thing in Star Trek to have... Picard has such gravitas 
Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful formula when you have somebody just status drop him uh, out of nowhere. And it's usually like a stranger who doesn't understand that Picard should have this gravitas. Because we, as as audience members, I mean, yeah, we're instructed that he does because he's the captain of a starship. But also because of the performance of Patrick Stewart, right? Like he just, right. it doesn't matter how you, what you put him in, he's just going to have that. Uh, there's just something, I mean, it's it's... One of the reasons why, uh, I forget her name, Loxana Troy, that character, whenever she mm-hmm. shows up, because she just doesn't care about his, uh, she, she cares about his status because he's the most important person on the ship until she steps on board, right? And then she's the most important. So, right. um, here's one where he comes in as a captain, as a spectator, as a, as a, uh, audience member, uh, and in this character just won't treat him as a captain. <laughs> And won't treat him as a spectator, as an audience member. And I think that's great. Yeah. And he's clearly taken aback both by the, like, the resolution Mm -hmm. of the holodeck, right? Like, he's amazed by how real everything looks and the sounds and the smells. But then he also doesn't know what to make of this person who seems so real because he's so perfectly holographically realized who doesn't treat him like a captain, right? It takes him a little bit to figure out how to act. And that realness, I do, I do like this implication that this is the first time the holodeck has been this real. Now, mm-hmm. again, the year 2018, where we've had some experience with virtual reality, uh, both good <laughs> and bad, you have to wonder what, like, the previous holodeck was like. <laughs> Did it all smell like off-gassing plastic? Did people spend more than 15 minutes in it and come out and just, just had to, like, sit down and let their stomach settle? <laughs> right, had, like, sp- like splitting headaches because of all the, like, rays bouncing through your eyeballs and stuff? I think I, 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 think I might have uh, relayed this story to you, but maybe not to our audience members, and maybe they enjoy it. Um, I share a co-working space with a video game company, and they work on some uh, virtual reality stuff. One of my first days there, I witnessed... Without knowing it, somebody who was working on uh, an early part of a virtual reality thing didn't know that they were doing it. I'm just typing away, and out of the corner of my eye, I see him come out of his office, put both hands on his knees, and crouch down, and just start breathing heavily. <laughs> he had just had the glasses on for a few minutes, and it just messed up his center of balance. Because they had, I don't know if it was like a glitch or anything, but it, you have to expect that uh, early holodeck uh, beta tests had to have been horrific. I don't think we're interested into delving into the implications of what this kind of technology right. could mean, right? Like, <laughs> that's a fun game to play. Right. We're not going to play that game on, on our show here. That is not the point to 20 a day. <laughs> right, no. We, we're, we're interested in the fictional premise here, not how it would really, quote, really work. What I think is, is important here is that the reality of this fictional place is sold to us by Picard's amazement at how real it is. Right. Yes, exactly. In addition to the, the, the secretary making fun of him for his clothes, she says that there's someone waiting for him in his office, as every good hard-boiled PI story should start. <laughs> he goes in, and there is a, as one would expect, a leggy blonde waiting for him <laughs> in his office with the Venetian blinds yes. um, and the, the harsh lighting and the shadows and all of this very on-point homage visual language of... The noir detective. We have two voiceovers before we get here, mm-hmm. uh, which are standard for Star Trek. Star Trek always has a voiceover. It's the captain's log. Or in the, in, in this case, it starts with the first officer's log and then the captain's log. Um, and those themselves have very like noir 
deep noir roots. Mm. Yeah, they're like uh, Double Indemnity. Right. Yeah. The whole fictional frame of, I forget the character's name, but you learn, spoiler alert for Double Indemnity, you learn towards the end that the voiceover is him dictating into a dictaphone. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. It's a, it's a literal voiceover from the end of the movie that is played over the beginning of the movie. And I, I think it's just kind of fun to see that parallel play out here. Although, like, he doesn't have a voiceover for the holodeck program. We just have the voiceover from the outside world. Uh, so yeah, uh, well, so that's a question. Is he Dixon Hill? I mean, he is in terms of he loaded the Dixon Hill program, right? but he's still in his uniform. He doesn't really know how to act yet. So is he Dixon Hill here or is he Jean-Luc Picard? So here we get to the uh, premise of the game I played with this episode, which is <laughs> I assumed that every moment in the holodeck is a Dixon Hill episode and we have Jean-Luc Picard playing Dixon Hill. Right. And every moment outside the holodeck is the DVD extras of the behind the scenes of when that episode uh, was being created. So this may be just to let the audience understand why I have um, maybe a more bizarre take on some of these scenes here than than Nathan does. But uh, the in my mind, he is Dixon Hill. And he has, he has lost a bet. Yeah, yeah. And... This comes full circle in a horrific way by the end of the Dixon Hill episode. And so we'll get into that. But this is... I'll, I'll hang with you for this. This is... Okay. Like, if you're just watching Dixon Hill, this is a great mysterious open. That's true. What What is going on with this outfit? And, and why is he like this? And the, the answer to that mystery will blow your mind. <laughs> All right. He... So, so Dixon Hill then talks to this woman. Her name is Jessica Bradley. She says that someone is trying to kill her. And I may have misspoke earlier. And here is when we get our uh, the, the standard Star Trek credits yes. um, to, to break us from our intro into the first act. <laughs> that is one of the areas where I had a little trouble. I was like, is this in the Dixon Hill episode? <laughs> All right. So uh, we, we come back uh, to the voiceover mm -hmm. of the captain's personal log talking about Dixon Hill. So, so for me, watching this as a Star Trek audience member, this totally makes sense. Right. But this sounds like it might be a, a crisis for the way that you're watching <laughs> it, where his voiceover is saying that Dixon Hill is a fictional detective from the 20th century <laughs> while he's on the holodeck. Uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, Dixon Hill may be drunk. He may have been hit over the head. Uh, <laughs> he may be dealing with some... Um, I think it has to be in universe for the end of the episode, for the end of the Dixon Hill episode to make any sense. Yeah. And, and, uh, it could be read at this moment as a solipsistic nightmare, right? Like this is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll get to it because the end of the Dixon Hill okay. episode, I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jessica Bradley, she doesn't know who, though she does think maybe Cyrus Redblock. Yes. Or maybe someone else wants to kill her. She wants Dixon Hill to find out who and why. Name your fee. And he names his fee $20 a day plus expenses. <laughs> a call out to a non-fictional detective show from the 1970s, not the 1940s, The Rockford Files. But we're not talking about that here. No, but I would urge our, our listeners to explore that uh, if they're interested in detective shows. Maybe they can enjoy an episode or two of the Rockford Files. There's a bit of flirtatiousness here uh, after he names his his fee. 
she gives him a kiss on the kind of on the side of the mouth yeah. that leaves a very prominent lipstick smear. She says that that she'll do it. She'll hire him. He hasn't said he'll take the case yet, but he she does give him a C note for a retainer. Um, I should point out because uh, we have dealt with some money here, mm-hmm. which rarely on on this show do you get to talk about money. But right. finally, finally, some numbers to crunch. In 1941, the twenty dollars a day uh, would equal about three hundred and fifty-one dollars or three hundred fifty-two dollars in in today's money. Mm-hmm. And like you had mentioned that uh, uh, what was it, the Rockford Files? <laughs> you had mentioned uh, during the Rockford Files. Uh, in 1941 would have been equivalent to $88 in 1978. So uh, so he's significantly underpricing himself compared to Jim Rockford. Right, yeah. Or or Jim Rockford is overpricing himself. We, I don't know. Like I, you, It's inflation. We'd have to watch the show. It's very hard to judge that sort of stuff. But So the C-note is almost 16 hundred dollars right like that's what in, in today's so that's a serious amount of money for someone she's clearly scared though as we know from from noir detective fiction perhaps her motive here is not what it seems exactly so dixon hill seems delighted uh to have this interaction with her and then after she leaves he gazes out the window at the the cars going by and he listens to the, the car honks and the, the night sounds of the San Francisco street uh, uh, stepping back, really lending the aura of reality to the holodeck, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So uh, in the Dixon Hill story, Dix leaves after he leaves his office, a squirrely guy uh, walks in looking for Dix. And then we go back to uh, the Enterprise where Jean-Luc Picard saves the program. Um, so there's a thing here. <laughs> I don't know if you found this as troubling as I did. The lipstick? Yes. Should we talk about the <laughs> lipstick? <laughs> so on the one hand, things work the way they need to work for each individual episode of Star right. Trek, right? Yeah. Like, if this is a problem for you, you yeah, <laughs> this probably isn't the conversation for you. But uh, things like how does the holodeck work? How do the transporters work? How do the replicators work? Those are inconsistent Mm -hmm. from episode to episode because they work how they need to for whatever the story is. Right. Uh, So in this case, he has this lipstick smear from a holodeck character on his face that he then carries with him through the entire next scene (laughs) while he's talking about how great the holodeck is until it's finally wiped off by Dr. Crusher. And and so I'd be like, oh, that's fine. That's just how it works to get that that gag, right? Right. But as we find out at the end of the episode, this episode has a specific line at which holodeck characters stop existing. Right. So so the, okay. So one of the things that kind of settled in my head that made this possible uh, is that the holodeck technology is not too different from the transporter and the replicator technology. I believe that is canonical, that they are bi- that they are the same thing. Right. In terms of turning matter to energy in whatever direction they need to. They and, need to. and there's huge philosophical issues with, the, <laughs> with that that we can get into. Well, that we won't get into. But right. if you are listening to us, you have access to the internet. And so you can, if you wish, get into it. But certainly if you... If he poured himself a drink on the holodeck, 
he would be drinking that drink, right? Like that, that oh, would sure. not. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. So this is just getting into pure headcanon, yeah. right? <laughs> but I can, I can see a, an approach where if something touches a person, then the holodeck turns it into matter. Right. In the same way a replicator turns energy into matter, right? Right. And I, like, I personally think that it, I would not put it past any holodeck programmers to program the lipstick specifically to act just like food or water would in, in, you know what I mean? Like right. they'd be like, Oh, here's a good Easter egg for people. They won't realize, <laughs> which explains why he wanders around with it and doesn't know. Yeah. So no, no one in the future wears lipstick. Right. So this is something he <laughs> doesn't even think about. Yeah. So there's a, there's a visual gag, you know, of, of, crew members looking at him yeah. funny as he walks through <laughs> the corridors stuff. with this lipstick smear on him. And then uh, we go to the next scene where he is excitedly regaling his senior staff with how great the holodeck is. Yeah. And I was like, did he call a meeting just to talk about the holodeck? <laughs> but no, this does have a purpose. Um, and this is a very, again, gag filled scene. There's a lot of good jokes that rest on People in the future don't remember stuff about the 20th century that we know because we are in the 20th century, or at the time, we're, yeah. we're in the 20th century. What isn't, like, Worf wants to know what an automobile is. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a bunch of references to, like, you know, old technologies that, like, data can re- can recall. Right. Um, and uh, Picard makes the specific points of how real everything seems. Dr. Beverly Crusher, the, especially more so in the early seasons, but the on again, off again, <laughs> romantic interest of Jean Luc Picard. I should say they have it. it, it it's bi directional, right? Their relationship is one of mixed professionalism and romanticism, yeah. and this episode brings up the romantic side in a way that not a lot of the episodes do. I think because of the fictional frame that they're able to, like, yeah. we're playing yeah. now, right? Which is great. Like, I mean, that's. Um... That's one of the purposes of play in general that goes back to, like, you can see in Victorian parlor games, those are all excuses to accidentally touch a person. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and in this case, it's Crusher who rubs this lipstick off of his right, face. Right, yes. Telegraphing that she's going to be interested in whatever he's up to. Yeah. Uh, so, so she, well, she's close to him, uh, rubs his lipstick off, and he invites her to come back on because it's so thrilling. And he also wants to invite their 20th century historical expert <laughs> member of their staff uh, to, to come as well. In addition to the real purpose of the meeting, which is the Harada, and this is kind of reprising, reprising this concept of the greeting. The last time the Federation tried to interact with the Harada, the captain messed it up and caused a 20 year conflict. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, They've reviewed the tapes of what happened to that ship, and they don't want to see them again. Oh, there is another important bit that we need to hit before we get to the real-life problems of the ship. And by real life, I'm putting quotes around it. <laughs> and that is Riker. Because when Picard is talking about the list of things you can encounter in the holodeck, he mentions women. Mm-hmm. And the look on Riker's face... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, like that. It, it, he is not at all hiding the fact that oh, I know what I'm going to use the holodeck for. Like he, he, he's right. He's not at all uh, disguising what his future plans are for the holodeck in that very moment. I like how in Deep Space Nine they kind of are have a much more 
I don't know if realistic is the right word. So on DS9, Quark runs the Hollow Suites, and the Hollow Suites are like rentals, mm-hmm. and they're much more telegraphed as like this is where people go to bone down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> while in Next Generation, like everyone kind of pretends like people aren't going to the holodeck to like have weird sexual fantasies. But yeah, what else would people do right. in the holodeck? <laughs> but Riker clearly is like yeah intrigued. <laughs> um, we get a bit of banter uh, between Data and Jordy as they leave the meeting. In their banter, uh, uh, or I think Data is also curious about this fictional character, and Jordy brings up Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, like, they could do lots of fictional characters. <laughs> uh, he's a detective. What's a detective? <laughs> oh, like Sherlock Holmes. And I'm not sure if this is the very first place where Sherlock Holmes is mentioned to Data. But it's planting a seed yes. that perhaps we will follow up again <laughs> in, in a later episode. of. Uh, so Data, curious about this, goes to look up Dixon Hill, find out what he can about this fictional character. The computer tells him and the audience in the, the very mannered way that Star Trek does this, the fictional background of the fictional detective, which is that he was written in a series of books in, 19, in the 1930s, and then Data reads them. Yeah, he demands that the computer does it faster but there is a moment here where we do we do learn to the educated viewer or the reader of memory alpha the author of dixon hill is listed yes. as tracy torme who <laughs> obviously is the author of the episode and thus that is not a fictional reference he is literally the author of dixon yes. hill yeah right and like once you follow that chain all the way to the end here's a, a wonderful almost borgesian thing is it uh tracy torme uh is either the author of Dixon Hill, or the author of Tracy Torme, the author of Dixon Hill, right? Like, is Mm -hmm. Tracy Torme a character within this situation here? It's distinctly possible. Like, we we have could have Mm -hmm. nesting dolls of Tracy Torme. Tracy Torme, who, at the time that this episode is written, so he's born in 59, Dixon Hill takes place in 41. It's certainly possible that Tracy Torme wrote these things any time after 1941 uh or maybe the tracy torme that tracy torme is writing about is a sci-fi writer writing about dixon hill from before the year 1941 i don't know yet we we can't quite figure out if the timeline tracy torme's line up anyways it's that is an interesting exploration that i uh, the kind of exploration that i find interesting that that uh Perhaps is not helpful for a podcast. <laughs> Though I will say that uh, another fun trivia note, you mentioned uh, Loxana Troy earlier. She was introduced by Tracy Torme as well uh, in terms of the ah, first introduction of the character. Interesting. So. so does Tracy Torme not respect Captain Picard? <laughs> um, all right. So we, we, we get the factoid that there's 11 hours until the rendezvous with the Harada, thus plenty of time mm-hmm. to go and play around in San Francisco. So we have finally in full period costume, <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard, the fiction expert, Wayland, I think he's a lieutenant, and Beverly Crusher, who is running a little late. And then Data shows up because he's invited himself along. Yes. <laughs> Oh, Data's outfit, too. Oh, <laughs> it's pretty great. Look up some screenshots. <laughs> the period costuming yeah. is pretty... I do not have the expertise to say how accurate it is, but it is certainly right. visually engaging and exciting to see, you know, these characters that we're so familiar with in this this new setting. 
And oh, and this is where we get the shot that I really liked in this episode, which is so the three of them, so Picard, Wayland, and Data, are go through the arch into the hollow deck with the whole scene of San Francisco in front of them, and we get this long uh, shot that kind of go like goes yes. to the arch and then through it, and it kind of they're kind of in the lower half of the of the shot, and with that, and there's like the swelling music that goes along with it that shot really communicated the sense of wonder that they have going into this yeah perfectly detailed exotic world yeah so it's a really good point because it, how necessary that shot is right like we're watching star trek uh because probably because we're looking for a little little hit of the wonder ourselves right like that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons to engage in sci- science fiction this is why we're engaging with it. And if they're then engaging with something that we're at least more passingly familiar with than they are, mm-hmm. we're not used to the 1941, but we've seen movies from that era where, you know, like it's, it's not alien to us like it would be to them. Comparatively, it's kind of like going, I don't remember the exact time, like the number of centuries that have elapsed, but like, it'd be like going through a doorway into a Greek theater and seeing the chorus, realizing that you're in this totally different environment that you've heard about and maybe read about, but you've never immersed in. Yeah. So how, how wonderful it is to then, you know, have them aware enough to kind of create that with the shot. Yeah. They know that their audience needs a little more help getting the, that this is wondrous. And it's really nice. I like that it's in this episode. I feel like they don't do it as much in other... Like, once it becomes more usual that they mm-hmm. go on the holodeck, it's not something they do every time to get this effect. Yeah. But I like that it's here because it... Not only does it really capture why Picard is so invested in this mm-hmm. and why he's so engaged, it also transitions us into the main Dixon Hill story in a really smooth way. Yes, so uh, uh, the three of them are exploring the San Francisco streets. They're charmed by everything. Uh, Picard is particularly compelled by the newspaper stand and the <laughs> very broadly drawn but fun to watch uh, newspaper hawker. <laughs> he flips through this newspaper. They have some some uh, a bit of business about uh, Joe DiMaggio and his baseball streak while data reels off statistics that are going to occur in the future. And the newspaper guy is bemused and then dumbfounded leading to another of those weird interactions, right? Where it's like, they know who Dixon Hill is supposed to be, but the other people aren't specific characters. They're just other people in Dixon Hill's world. So they get to another little bit about how he's not from around here. He's from South America. (laughs) Where's a place that someone in 1941 San Francisco probably wouldn't know anything about? Eh, That seems fair. The thing that I would have referenced if I were writing this in that time, and and we're very lucky that I wasn't, (laughs) uh, it would have been the Coneheads. The, this reoccurring SNL mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live characters who who would say that they're from France. That was their joke. Mm-hmm. But I think that that saying that would have been like at that time would, too on the nose and too. It would have been too pop cultural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in addition to to the jokes, uh, we also get to Dixon Hill seeing the picture in the paper mm-hmm. of the woman who had hired him, Jessica Bradley. She's been murdered. Oh, bad news. Bad news. <laughs> So here's a question for you with your viewing of Dixon Hill. Right. He feels bad about it. I I could have done something, right? Right, And then Wayland is like, she's just a fictional character. Right. 
I wrote this line down because this this line, it, taken from the context of Dixon Hill being an episode of something that we're watching uh, and not part of Star Trek, uh, this line is amazing. She's a page from a book. Dixon Hill has just learned that someone he knows has, has died, right? Someone who paid him to find out who wanted her to die. Right. You know, it's on him in many ways. And the words of comfort, and these are delivered as words of comfort. She's a page from a book. That's all she ever was. Oh, my God. And that's actually better than my summation of it. Because right. that's a metaphor that works for someone who just comes into your life and then is gone. Right. And... It's such a noir metaphor, right? It, it just, mm -hmm. and it hits, but it's also so grim, so grim in context. Obviously, we know as Star Trek viewers <laughs> that he's just tried to say it's just a video game, right? Like, don't invest yourself in this. But if we're not Star Trek viewers, if <laughs> we're part of this program or if we're watching this, like, that is cold. That is very cold. Yeah. Well, after that grim line is delivered, we get a, a couple of gorillas roll up to grab dicks. I did not realize until they talk about taking him downtown that they were cops and yes. not, like, mobsters. But yes, they arrest him for the murder of Jessica Bradley because they found his business card in her pocket. Yeah. Which is extremely flimsy, but also is right. very noir-y. It's not like the... That the cops are going to be uh, clean, right? Like, right. Um, Dixon Hill goes on commercial, uh, and we go <laughs> back to the bridge of the Enterprise, where the ship is undergoing a long-range probe by the Harada as they get closer to their rendezvous. Uh, the ship shakes to show us that something bad has happened, uh, and we see the holodeck kind of freaking out from the outside. The little <laughs> com panel flashes, yeah. and the doors open and close on their own. After this comes a message from the Harada. Uh, which doesn't seem to have much point other than to make the point that they will only talk to Picard. They message the ship and then <laughs> yell at Riker for answering because he's not the captain. Yes. <laughs> 11 hours before their rendezvous is supposed to happen. But it's just, it's just underlying that it is extremely important that Picard is the one who talks to them. Right. So uh, Riker sends Geordi down to get him back from the holodeck. Right, but there's no communication possible. Right. Here are the fictional pressures that are going to make our story start to get yeah. higher stakes. Dr. Crusher is in her costume, which is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> uh, so she arrives at the holodeck. The door is still kind of freaking out as she goes in, but she does manage to get through. And she comes through directly into the police station to join uh, Data and Wayland as they're waiting for Dixon Hill to be interrogated. The bit here, apparently, uh, Data has decided to try out all the imperial lingo <laughs> with full voice and motions. So <laughs> that's a lot of the uh, a lot of the gags here are Data's uh, uh, use of, of language. Uh, which asks where the captain is. Waylon tells her that he's being interrogated. He's having the time of his life. Yes. And she goes, why aren't we all being interrogated? <laughs> which, again, extremely weird in the world of Dixon Hill. But it's great, right? So in the fiction of Dixon Hill, if you look at this as a story, you're like, something's being built here. We're seeing a lot of intriguing, interesting characters that don't quite fit from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Dixon Hill himself so, you know, stands out in his pajamas, in his in his lost bet costume party. Uh, <laughs> the line is a perfectly legitimate line if you have a bunch of co-conspirators. Mm. You have a bunch of people who are involved in this murder who are all getting together, and only one of them is being interrogated. 
then yeah, you would ask the question, why aren't we all being interrogated? We're all just as guilty. You know, that, that sort of thing. Hmm. But that's not how it's delivered at all. It's, it's the joy. Like, why don't we get to be interrogated? And that particular bit, it, it just has this great feel of like, what is up with these people? And uh, hmm. will this all come together and make some sort of coherent sense at the end? Well, including that we see uh, Dixon Hill being yelled at and interrogated by the bad cop and smiling yeah. and clearly gleeful about the treatment that he's receiving. So that can be read. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having so much trouble <laughs> with this. That can be read as Dixon Hill being a little bit of a badass, right? Sure, yeah. We mentioned earlier... Uh, this, uh, obscure 70s detective TV show, The Rockford Files. And I could have, I've seen a few of these episodes. I can imagine a scene where the character of Rockford is as blasé about the interrogation. Mm -hmm. Going gleeful the way, uh, Dixon Hill did is one way. I feel like the character of Rockford would be just from my understanding, uh, would, would be more, uh, ironic or arch about it. Yeah. And just a little, a little as if it's an imposition to him and mm -hmm. he should just be let go. But both of them are treating it with the same weight, right? Right. I'm innocent. So let's get this interrogation over or let's, or let's enjoy it. Yeah. If we're going to be here. Well, and we do see, in a, it does drag on long enough that Dixon Hill loses his yes, yes. patience with it because it's not actually going anywhere. And he's like, okay, I'm done with this. Yeah. Uh, which is when we go from the bad cop to the good cop. But before we get to that, we do have a moment where Jordy reports back about not being able to get onto the holodeck or communicate into it. Uh, Riker dispatches him and uh, acting ensign Wesley Crusher, who apparently has an encyclopedic knowledge of the holodeck <laughs> specs. Yes. Um, but also... Also, his mother is missing in yeah. there as well. So Riker allows him to go help Jordy. Uh, though, as we see, Wesley seems to be doing all the work. <laughs> Apparently, he is the holodeck expert. Yeah, well, uh, who knew? You would expect that, right? He's the youngest, and, and this is new technology. These are a bunch of old <laughs> fogies that don't know how to use their new technology. That makes <laughs> sense. Shout out to Wesley Crusher. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, we get another quick scene in a minute where there's no quick fix. They have to go through it millimeter by millimeter to determine <laughs> why it's not working. Working. Yeah. But yeah, so Dix is no longer amused uh, with his interrogation. The bad cop leaves. I feel like I didn't get any of their name, either their names, oh. but they're listed on, on Memory Alpha. The good cop, uh, who ends up having a bigger uh, role as we go, is McNary. Um, so McNary comes in, they banter. We see that the character of McNary and the character of Dixon Hill have history. They're friends from across the across the police line. Yeah, you would invite one to barbecue. Right. If it was possible to run some license plate numbers at this point in history, McNary would be the one that Dixon Hill is calling yeah. to, to ask to, as a favor to run those plates. Uh, from their banter, uh, we get to McNary asking, well, you must have someone waiting or you wouldn't want to get out of here so, yeah. so bad. Uh, who is she? <laughs> Dixon Hill replies, she's a lady, all right, and her name is Enterprise. Which, again... It's a little weird, but, you know, people have weirder names. <laughs> <laughs> or, as you say, he's married to his work, the enterprise that he is engaged in. That, I think, probably is the best interpretation of that. <laughs> Which is great. Um, 
No, that's that's canon in my head now. It, that's that's <laughs> canon in my head in the world of Dixon Hill. Well, and then Dixon Hill goes out to meet up with his friends and sees for the first time in full costume, or for the first time in the show of Dixon Hill, Beverly Crusher. Yes. Waiting for him uh, after she's been powdering her nose, imitating... Uh, another woman who's in the police <laughs> station, clearly framed as some kind of uh, uh, working girl. And also, uh, a police sergeant starts hitting on her yes. shortly before, on, on Crusher, shortly before uh, Dixon Hill returns. So, the bit about this that, that really stands out to me is, uh, the implication is that this character... In both fictional interpretations, both in the world of Dixon Hill and in the world of Star Trek, doesn't know how to apply makeup. And she's clearly wearing just a metric ton of makeup. Mm -hmm. She did not come into the scene without makeup on. So... <laughs> Uh, in the world of Star Trek, maybe that makeup was replicated on her face and she just didn't know how to deal with it. It could be she went to an actual makeup person. We do know that the, sh the, the, the ship has a barber. Mm -hmm. But in the world of Dixon Hill, uh, it's even more bizarre because she is clearly made up. And then just adding more and more makeup as she sits there. Yeah. 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 And is like trying to learn how to do makeup from this other person. So we don't know how she got this makeup on her face. It's another hint at what the true meaning behind this episode is. There's a lot of good bits in business. We're going to skip over some of them. It's, it is an episode worth watching, yeah. right? Uh, Picard comes back, sees Crusher all made up, all the costuming and stuff. This is when they have an interaction where they are very close to each other. We get like the slow zoom on their faces. <laughs> yeah. There's some chemistry. There's some, some energy there going back and forth or looking into each other's eyes. Dixon Hill invites her to come back to check out his office. <laughs> but then coming up in the background, Wayland and Data invite themselves along because they also <laughs> want to see the office. And we get a big eye roll from Beverly Crusher. Yeah. Oh, this is such a good scene. Once back at the office, everyone, you know, has the appropriate amount of, of wonder about how well realized it is. And then our squirrely guy comes back in. Yeah. This is Felix Leach, who is uh, played by a character actor that I feel like people would recognize his face or his voice. Uh, the actor is Harvey Jason, who seems familiar from many things, including one episode of another detective show, ah. Columbo. He was in a second season episode uh, in the early 70s. Uh, all of the characters in Dixon Hill are kind of heightened caricatures. Right. You just need to get what they are. So he's this big version of this weaselly but creepy henchman. He has business with Dixon Hill and he produces a gun. Uh, he wants a certain object that Dixon Hill is supposed to have. Yeah. And he threatens them with the gun. Waylon steps up, puts on his own period <laughs> voice. We're not going to give you anything. Give me the gun. And then Felix Leach oh. reaches out and shoots him in the stomach. And everybody is appropriately horrified. Including Beverly Crusher. Yes. Applauding. <laughs> As we know, the Star Trek holodeck has safety protocols so that real people <laughs> can't get injured. So they they are all appropriately impressed with, like, the pratfall. Yeah, yeah, this guy has acted quite well. But then he raises his hand, and they see blood on it, and it's real. He's really bleeding. And now it has gotten real. Yes. <laughs> this is, again, this is a um, the weirdness of the, the fictional world here. Like, why would they be applauding at one of their friends getting shot? Right, That's exactly. That's very strange. <laughs> this is a... Uh, a tonal shift um, mm -hmm. from how they've been treating everything like a toy, like a game. Right. Now they're they're shocked by it. 
Yeah, I won't say so much, too much more about these reactions because actually the, the best part of it is just about to, to show up. So Crusher checks him out. He He's going to die if they don't get him to sickbay. Yeah. But then they can't get the, the exits. Dixon Hill quickly steps up, disarms, and then smacks Leech across the face, sending him running out of the <laughs> office. Both he and Data call for exits, which do not appear. Clearly something is wrong, and the tonal shift really solidifies from that sense of wonder and and amusement and play to one of fear. Right. Because now they're trapped in this place. Yes. Then we get a quick bit on the bridge where they have arrived at the rendezvous with the Harada. There's only so long Riker can stall them. They need the captain. Back on the holodeck, Data is at a loss. There's a bit of business with moving a corded lamp around. Again, kind of showing that they don't know this place, mm-hmm. right? They don't know the <laughs> the parameters of what they're dealing with. It's good business, too. I mean, like, this is Data's shtick in general, but I couldn't help but laugh. At, at how he's reacting because yeah. it's a little three stoogy because he unplugs but Picard understands what's happening and plugs it back in but Data's unaware of that ha- like that's what fixes it so it just turns off and then turns <laughs> yeah. back on and he doesn't know yeah. why there's no clue yeah Leech returns with another goon and the aforementioned Cyrus Redblock oh Cyrus Redblock who, again, is played in this extremely big, over-the-top way by uh, Lawrence Tierney. Yes. Who, again, is a big character actor from movies and TV from the 40s through the late 90s, and is just full of scenery-chewing... Oh, so good. ...expressive dialogue. He has so many lines, like quotable lines. Mm -hmm. Some of them have to be quotes and references right like i didn't really recognize any in particular but the way that they're delivered and they're so stylized seemed to me that they really have to be some kind of references right yeah i i I would agree with you and i don't think i would be able to to figure out what they are um but they're very period in that noir literary sense Mm -hmm. of you know using language really specifically So, you know, he says stuff like, life is an endless series of choices, good manners are never a waste of time, that kind of stuff. Plot-wise, what happens here is that, so so Red Block is looking for the item. Yeah. Leech can't believe that he was hit. He's he's both offended and afraid that Hill was brazen enough to strike him. So he gets his own back. He he basically pistol whips him across the face, uh, causing Picard to bleed. Right. Again, showing that they are vulnerable. And calls back uh, the lipstick. Oh, that's true. Like, he's bleeding on the lip uh, in exactly uh, the, the exact same spot, I believe. Yeah, it's a visual callback. Yeah, for sure. And then McNary shows up with a bottle of scotch he was going to share with Dixon Hill because he saw the lights on, thought he was still working. And he walks into these gangsters, you know, (laughs) holding everyone at bay. We get some banter between Data and Redblock about, you know, he's from South America. You know, I've been all over the world. I've never seen anything like you. He's a little more educated and world, you know, world wise than your standard 1941 person on the street. Yeah, he's, he's not a thug here. He's he's the the mastermind. Uh, so seeing that denial is getting them nowhere, Picard takes, and or Dixon Hill, I suppose I should say, takes a new tack. They're not from here. They're from another world. <laughs> ah, so we've stepped into the Twilight Zone. Oh, well, not quite yet. <laughs> We're about to step into... Okay, so at this point, as a viewer of Dixon Hill... <laughs> I'm like, is this a con? Mm. Is it is it a desperate attempt to distract your captors from the truth? Maybe put them off guard long enough to take a take a run for it. You know what? 
What is your end goal here? I mean, from the Star Trek view, the end goal is this intriguing uh, discussion that you're opening up about what is being, right? right. <laughs> what is existence? Uh, because yeah. I'm about to tell you that your existence doesn't exist. I think in viewing the Dixon Hill, that's not where we're at just yet, because we're about to get there. Well, and also, as a Dixon Hill viewer, on the one hand, this could be a con, but also be a con on the viewer, because it actually explains right. some of the irregularities of the other characters yeah. that we've seen so far. Are we being fooled as viewers, or are they now revealing why all this weird right. stuff we've seen is true? Um but yes, they, uh, they're from another world with fabulous riches. That's mm -hmm. where the item is. <laughs> the item. <laughs> this is the greatest MacGuffin yeah. <laughs> uh, of all time, as it's not even named. It's literally just yes. the item. Data says that Red Block and his goons, they're the fictional characters. All this conversation of who's real and who's fake is making Leech crazy. He just wants to kill someone. <laughs> Leech. Red Block says that, well, we'll test the theory by killing one of you. I want the item. If you don't have it, then I'll kill one of you. And then he ends up targeting Crusher as the one who will be shot yeah. if Dixon Hill does not produce the item. So Picard's like, okay, fine. I do have it. But my price for bringing it to you is that you have to let help us save this man's life. Because Wayland is, he's going to die yeah. from the gunshot wound. Redblock has a phrase here while he's waiting for Picard to, to tell him what he wants. Make your thoughts fruitful and your words eloquent. <laughs> so good. So delightfully written by either uh, Tracy Torme or Tracy Torme. Outside, the holodeck crusher says he thinks he has something that might work. Uh, there is no drawback to trying it. It'll either work or not work now, or it'll work or not work later. Right. So do it now, which is a weird piece of techno babble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, on one hand, I think it's it's kind of awesome. Listen, this is these are our odds. We spent any more time working on it. Right. It's not going to improve our odds to keep working yeah. on it. But it's delivered by Wesley. <laughs> like his mom is in there. <laughs> So it's... Yeah. He's like, I'm done. I'm done with this. I can't do anymore. This is the best I can do for you. Um, so he does a thing. Uh, so we go back inside. Leech wants to kill Data. Uh, there's a little more banter about saving lives and whatnot. But then whatever Wesley does suddenly plunges them into a blizzard. Like, the entire scene just turns into ice and snow and swirling winds, and the everyone jumps and yells, and it's like, what? You know, it's freaking out about what happened, and then it's gone. Yeah. And then the exit arch appears and opens. So, the blizzard, that's the bit. That is the thing that, that nails it. That is when we go from a pretty typical noir story to a Twilight Zone episode, right? Like, and mm -hmm. this would fit right in with a Twilight Zone episode. The Dixon Hill story would be a Twilight Zone episode, no problem. Uh, and it is that blizzard that that does it. Like the sheer terror that that would ha that would bring on the characters within that story. Uh, on maybe not Cyrus Redblock mm -hmm. because he definitely can roll with some punches. Uh, all the who aren't Dixon strangers, as we'll call as I'll call them. You know, like yeah. this is a great moment. This is the panning in through the the arch into the hollow deck moment of wonder mm -hmm. for the viewer of the Dixon Hill episode. <laughs> 
Yeah, it suddenly changes. Picard says that it's it's the way into our world. Yeah. Red Block wants to go out himself. And yes. I think Data warns him, you can't go out. Right. You have to, you know, you, your existence will stop. He could have just kept his mouth shut. Like, I kind of, I half remembered this episode as this being a trick. Right. I was thinking the same thing. They trick them into going out, and that's how they get out of it. But this is actually a stronger thematic statement, right? That Data tells him, no, right. going out there is basically death for you and he's like i don't believe that i'm gonna do it <laughs> <laughs> so red block and and reach we're like we're gonna go out there after we're gone kill all of them <laughs> you know make sure the bodies are never yeah. found and then they walk out of the arch and they take a couple steps away from the holodeck yeah and then slowly start dissolving from the feet <laughs> upwards and we get the the final line from red block of what is this what are they doing they can't do this to me. Don't they know who I am? I'm Cyrus Redblock! Cyrus Redblock! <laughs> a little over the top, but yeah. Um, back inside, uh, Data easily disarms the remaining goon, bends the gun with his android strength, uh, and then punches him out. Picard has them take uh, Wayland to sickbay, and then we have a moment, kind of the emotional peak of the episode. So, I mean, Dixon Hill, but at this point, I mean, I guess this is still Dixon Hill, because he's talking to McNary, and McNary has seen all this unfold mm-hmm. in front of him, right? You know, they have a moment where they say goodbye, Hill is like, I have to leave now. I'm leaving forever. You'll never see me again. Yeah. (laughs) And McNary says, so this is the big goodbye. Yeah. And it's the title of the episode. And then asks, after you're gone, will this world still exist? Will I still see my wife and children? Right. Yeah. Oh, so heartbreaking. And Dixon Hill, Picard, he doesn't know. Yeah. Well, and then it ends, my second favorite shot from the episode, where Picard leaves the holodeck, the exit closes after him, but the camera stays on the holodeck, Mm -hmm. and then all the lights, everything just fades down to black after Picard is gone. This is the end of the Dixon Hill episode, right? This isn't the end of our episode from Star Trek, but this is the end of our Dixon Hill episode. Uh, And this ending, I'm going to say, is slightly more satisfying than the ending to the, the Star Trek episode. Uh-huh. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I want to put a footnote here and say I want to sure, yeah. I want to talk about the implications of this ending, <laughs> and then we continue with Star Trek. All right. This is also a great ending to uh, Twilight Zone, like as you were saying. Well, so we go from here to the ending of our Star Trek episode, where Picard rushes to the bridge, still in his Dixon Hill costume, takes off his hat and coat, turns around, and gives the Harada greeting. Yes. Um in good order. He undoes his tie a little bit too, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> There's a pregnant pause and then they get a response that they are honored by his perfect greeting. <laughs> Captain Picard does it again. He did yep. the thing. Applause from the bridge crew. Yay! Um, Data arrives. Uh, he is also still in the costume. Mm-hmm. He sits down at his uh, in his position. Uh, someone asks him about how, how he found the holodeck or whatever. Yeah. And he continues chewing the scenery in his 40s accent uh, until he is called called out uh, for <laughs> yes. it. And then where usually we would end an episode on Jean-Luc Picard saying engage, <laughs> he instead says, step on it. Yeah. Credits roll. End of episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, let me talk about this, this, this moment of satisfaction. In future Star Trek episodes, they'll explore this a little bit more. 
But the Twilight Zone ending to the Dixon Hill is great because it doesn't tell you whether they'll exist or not. It leaves a big question. Yeah, it's a great question. And it leaves you as audience members, uh, or rather it left me as a member of, uh, of that audience. Of the Dixon Hill viewing audience. Yeah, the fictional epi who's the viewer there with a sense of, are we real, right? Like this is sure. the same sort of mind-blowing thing that the Matrix was. But, uh, you know, the, the, this, uh, some Philip K. Dick stuff right. or before the Matrix and some Borges stuff before that. And all the way down to Plato. The big question of if all of our senses tell us that we're in a real world, right. but we are limited by the extent of our senses... How do we know, you know, that that is the real world and not a simulation or not, yeah. or not an artifact of our sensory perception, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So this is great. This is a fun tale to tell, and it goes back. It goes all the way back. Yeah, and I think we can talk about it in this kind of blasé manner because not because it's a boring question, right? But because it's a question that we re-engage with over and over yes. as as times change, as technology changes, and as the fiction that we engage with brings it up in different ways. Yes, yeah. and they're you know great works of our past that have, have tackled this um but it's great because it has this this wonderful visceral fear now we contrast that with the the sort of okay so we contrast that with the star trek episode ending it's kind of a good ending it's it's actually of the sort that i enjoy which is you have this grand problem where the solution is something very small and petty uh and very nitpicky <laughs> one of my favorite authors jack vance does this all the time in his stories they're just like often involving wizards or space travelers who have to deal with just weird very picky social constructs <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm not like belittling that because I actually quite enjoy all that. What is weird is that Picard can walk away from McNary. That he can he'd be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just peace out. On the one hand, right, like he knows the importance of like he, he knows that there's a timeline, right? And the character of Picard yeah. is is about duty, right? It's about doing what he needs to do. I, I'm not saying it's outside of his character to do it because it absolutely is within his character. He needs to make a snap decision as a captain of a starship would have to, right? In that mm-hmm. case, the the sort of mathematics that he has to face are, well, I do know to some extent that my world exists, although we know that his world doesn't. Um, <laughs> right. I'm getting into Borges again. But anyway. <laughs> but I know to some extent my world exists, at, at least to a greater extent than McNary's world does, or with a greater amount of certainty. Right. And that my world is in peril if I don't do something right now. He, he's making the decision that he can make, which is... You're not real, so I can safely right. walk away. Um, which I think brings up the, the thing that is that is most interesting to me about that ending, uh, which isn't necessarily the what is consciousness, how does that relate to reality, which, you know, is interesting enough, but where does the responsibility lie? Yeah. Is there, and this comes up in maybe another, we, we alluded earlier to some of the data mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, episodes where this is the point of the episode, but it's like, McNary only exists because Picard wanted him to. Now that if McNary is self-aware because of it, does Picard have a responsibility to that? Or is it right. still safe to just... Yeah, so it's like, where where does the consciousness fall along the existence, non-existence, permissive spectrum? Right. And it's one that Star Trek does tackle outside the ship quite often. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, and Data is yeah. kind of usually the locus of that, right? But also... 
when they come across some threat and then it turns out to have intelligence mm-hmm. or consciousness or self-awareness so they can't just shoot it because they respect life and all that stuff they have to first determine that it is of that magnitude and then figure out how to solve it without just killing it so this is kind of the flip side of that coin where they're like right. oh well you're not really alive <laughs> so you can stop existing now uh so one of those big questions that I think the best episodes of Star Trek bring up, and this is a thematic one throughout Next Generation right. and certainly Voyager with the whole with the holographic Doctor character. Right. But uh, in terms of fictional holodeck characters, Dixon Hill is a fun character that we actually don't really get to see too much because yes. we keep seeing Picard. Yes. <laughs> instead. I don't have any conception of Dixon Hill outside Jean-Luc Picard playing Dixon Hill. I do have some fan theories about Dixon Hill, one of which is that he fought in the Great War uh, (laughs) because people keep calling him Captain. Mm. Either he was a disgraced captain from the police force, which is how he knows McNary, or he was a captain Mm -hmm. in the Great War. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, clearly, Red Block has been a power broker for a while. He has a line about, why why wouldn't I kill a policeman? I've done it before. So mm-hmm. what happens when he's gone and there's a power vacuum in San Francisco? A lot of good, a lot of good stuff to, for the, for a, a Dixon Hill sequel, perhaps. And it's, it's also worth examining both on, on all the levels that we have here. Uh, mm-hmm. the parallels between Red Block and Dixon Hill and Captain Picard, because I think that sure, there's, yeah. I mean, they're both bald. Um, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're both willing to snuff out the existence of other people to get what they need. <laughs> If, if they have determined that that existence is not equivalent to theirs. Exactly. Yes. There's interesting stuff here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So the first season of Next Generation, I think, and rightly so, is considered to be, you know, they're still finding their feet. There's a lot right. of kind of weird stuff and not, not super great episodes. But this is a good one. Yeah, I think um, so. I think this one stands, stands the test the test of time uh there's still a lot of good stuff in it and while we maybe went down a little bit of our own <laughs> rabbit hole about the layers the layers and layers here yeah because uh, that's what we're interested in i think this this episode does a good job of taking a fictional show to present us another fiction in a way that is both thematically resonant with the the first show mm-hmm. like the show you're actually watching but also interesting and fun right they get to be in costume. They get to be in these period sets. One thing I did want to mention was uh, a lot of the time where it's like there's some banter or there's some business. There's a lot of scenery chewing. The actors have a chance to really do some really broad acting with yeah. some like fun stuff that they don't get to say very often. Yeah, yeah. The in-universe actors are all, as we said, extremely broad and do lots of voices, voice yeah. stuff and lots of lingo and all that stuff. So it's a fun, it's fun to watch. And I think you can see that they had fun doing mm-hmm. it. I would agree. Good episode. And I think a, a, a solid entry into our fictional characters of the holodeck uh, survey. <laughs> exactly. Do you have anything else about the big goodbye before uh, we, we take our break? Yeah, have our small goodbye? Uh, no, I think we I think we covered uh, quite a bit of it um, and tangled up as much of it as we can tangle up. <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh, let's take the break and when we get back, we'll um, we'll examine what we can learn from it. Absolutely. All right, we'll be right back. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? 
I'm excited about Swords and Sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the Worldwide Wrestling Role-Playing Game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the Playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to $20 a Day, uh, the podcast where we talk about um, the fictional characters of the Star Trek holodeck. Uh, and in the what you just heard, the first uh, portion of the episode, we talked about the big goodbye, the our introduction to Dixon Hill. And a great introduction it was. Yeah, and the, the noir world of San Francisco in 1941. As portrayed aboard the Starship Enterprise. Uh, this is the second part of the episode. This is where we talk about some of the lessons that we may have learned about creating our own fiction in the holodecks of our mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Whether that is uh, fiction that we're writing for things, uh, fiction that we're acting out, or that we're playing at the table in a role-playing game. Role-playing games being the literal holodecks of our minds. <laughs> so, what have we learned? I, I want to like just kind of... Do a little bit of a, um, set our listeners' minds at ease, uh, to let them know that I will no longer be zooming in and out of various uh, <laughs> fictional viewing levels. And we'll just talk about what, how this was done, um, and things that we learned. Well, so speaking of those fictional levels, uh, I think, yeah, we, we don't need to go back and forth in terms of our discussion, but the techniques that this episode uses to give us two different fictional realities and then weave them together, I think yeah. are pretty, uh, are, are pretty strong. Um, I mean, it relies on, I mean, like most, especially science fiction, but most fantasy fiction, it, it relies on some assumptions about the ways that the technology works in order to fictionally justify the ways that the yeah. characters interact. Right. And I don't think we need to go too much into that. Like that's suspension of disbelief. <laughs> groundwork assumptions of your fiction kind of stuff. But I think there's something really clever here about how the story of the episode transitions from one of exploration and wonder to one of uh, tension and danger. And it comes about through taking a fictional pressure from one layer, having a crisis that combines the layers, and then having a fictional pressure from the second layer. Yes. Right? Like, all all arrow together over the arc of the episode. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that because right. So the the balancing act that you got here. Uh, okay, so do you remember um, Inception, the movie Inception? So this has yes. uh, quite a bit of that going on. Your dreams within dreams within dreams. Uh, and when Inception came out, there was somebody who was doing uh, a hack of dread where they pulled out a new Jenga tower for each layer of dream that you had going and thematically i think that's that's pretty interesting but from sort of a game design and this is why i'm bringing it up here is that i i would have concerns that uh you would lose the previous pressure each time right like you if it's brand new, yeah. Yeah, you step into a new story. Mechanically in Dread, that's a reset because yeah. the tension comes from drawing the blocks out and waiting to see yeah. what's going to cause the tower to fall. So when you refill the tower, you're actually taking the tension yeah. away. 
And so the metaphor as it applies here is that basically what I'm saying is if you're telling the audience, here's the real world, now here's the fake world within the real world, and so on and so forth, however far down you want to go, the pressures in your fake world are going to be less impactful unless they interplay with the pressures from the real world. Right. I think Inception is a great counter. Yeah. Not really counterpoint, but it's a great contrast with this episode because Inception and other episodes of Star Trek that are like Inception where you don't know as an audience member, you are following a character as they move through different levels of a reality and you don't know where they are. And part of the drama is waiting for what's the next change going to be. When are you going to find out what's, quote, real and what's <laughs> a layer? In this episode, as audience, we're watching our, our protagonists go from one to the other. It's very clear when they're on the holodeck and when they're not on the holodeck. So uh, the tension the tension shifts because you know the stakes. Like, you're not waiting to find out right. what's going to yeah. happen to Dixon Hill. You know that Dixon Hill is a fake character on the holodeck. What's actually what what the real stakes are in the world of Star Trek are what's going to happen with the, with these aliens if Picard can't give them the right greeting. But the combination and this I mean this sounds super obvious cuz like right. we just saw it done and it was done very well, but I think we're calling out the technique, right, which is the combination of the two is when the protocol is overridden or whatever and now our characters are trapped on a layer. It's suddenly more real than it was. Right. And it's suddenly real. And suddenly there's physical danger. And I think what's key here is that the fact that they're trapped is the tension. They also use the shooting Waylon mm-hmm. and then there's like a that creates yeah. like a time clock, like we have to get out at this point or he will die. But that is the same time clock as if we don't tell the Harada the right thing at the yeah. right time, they're gonna blow up our ship, right? The tension comes from we're trapped. We're, we're trapped in a different place and we don't have the resources that we assumed that we'd have. I think Star Trek overplays this over time, right? Like they go back mm-hmm. to this well a lot, uh, especially with the holodeck to the point of like, why does the holodeck even have <laughs> controls that can be overridden? There's a joke to it, but if we're just focusing just on this episode, the limiting of their movement is what creates, yeah, is what combines their realities, right? And makes the stakes from one matter in the other one. And I think that, like, I was, okay, so I was literally thinking about your, uh, what you were saying about the shooting of Wayland and how, as audience, that had more weight to me than, uh, the Harada, right? And I think part of why that is, mm-hmm. what's going on in the Harada layer of the story, I've been doing a lot of hand gestures in this podcast and that don't help us at all <laughs> in the harada layer of the story we're getting a straightforward standard uh star trek episode for the most part or no mm-hmm. actually not even standard we're getting like the barest outline of a star trek episode with them before we before we did this podcast i was kind of uh, we were talking about it a little bit and i the thing that i said at the time which i think holds true here is that we're getting uh the outside layer is what the Star Trek crew is doing between episodes, right? Like, sure, yeah. This is a day in the life of Star Trek, uh, of um, the crew of the Enterprise. So, what we're getting on the Harada layer is almost just a day in the life of the crew of the Enterprise. Picard has to do these diplomatic connections yeah. all the time, and only sometimes do we see a whole episode about it because a lot of them are like this. And so, there's a pressure there, but the pressure 
drives Picard into the Dixon Hill layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once he's trapped in that layer, uh, the pressure on him is more about the, what's happening immediately there, which is Waylon being shot. And right. there, he definitely is like, we need to leave. I got to go do a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as audience, what we're feeling in there is Waylon. The, the, the visceral tension is, oh, this gangster who has no, like in, in the fiction of Star Trek. Yeah. Right. This gangster was written in order to be an antagonist to the character that Picard is playing. Yeah. There's not even a, how do you reason with this person? Right. They are written not to be reasoned with because they are written to be a plot device. And now that they can create physical harm. Yeah. That's the visceral, like, is there any way to stop this? Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. And I think that it's 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 clearly complex writing it, but viewing it, it's not as complex, right? Like Yeah, it's not really complex at all. It's it's pretty linear in terms of the moment to moment seeing what's happening and feeling what you're supposed to feel when you right. see it happen. The the main thing is as you're applying the pressures as you're you're writing it or um playing it at the table, you want to make sure that <laughs> Since they're coming from these different directions, you want to make sure that they don't just push in a completely obvious escape route, right? Which lets it all out. Right, yeah. And also that they work together and not be totally separate. I guess what I'm trying to say is if if the pressures work together, then the characters or, you know, your reader or your player, the investment grows as the two pressures come together if they're two separate things that happen to be happening at the same time then you're probably going to end up invested in one more than the other right and that's what happens with a lot of Mm -hmm. like a plot b plot episodes where there's these two plots that are happening concurrently but they don't really impact each other so you end up being like i'm actually not really interested in data trying to find his cat when are we going to get back to like the away team and what they're doing on the planet right because one of these things feels more important and then in this episode, the A plot and B plot, the B plot is essentially the Harada, but they actually, they come together at the end with those mounting pressures, which is, which is nice. That kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, so I'm going to pronounce it two different ways and then stick with one. Uh, either the Drosta or the Drost effect, D-R-O-S-T-E. You can look it up. It's a recursive effect. It's named after a brand of cocoa. On the the container of the cocoa, there's a picture of a nun carrying a tray, which has the container of the cocoa on it, which has a picture of the nun carrying a tray, which has the container. And so you, you get where that's going. And and <laughs> we've all seen it, like in memes or animated GIFs have it all over the place. And, and mm-hmm. uh, just this sort of sense of things going on forever and ever. But the reason why I bring this effect up, because uh, this story is a story within a story, and we have that a similar pattern here. But also to just kind of remind folks that that is not on that container of cocoa is not an infinitely small image of a nun carrying a, a tray with a container of cocoa on it. Like the smaller the image gets, uh, the worse the resolution of the image gets. And it, it's fine. It is absolutely fine. To our eyes, we understand what's going on and we can fall into that image. And why I bring that up is because mm-hmm. we've been talking about how delightful these characters are, but they're broadly depicted. And one of the reasons why that's perfectly okay mm-hmm. is that we know as we're watching it that they're a fiction within a fiction. 
So we lose some of the resolution and we're okay with the, that loss of resolution. Mm -hmm. It gives us permission to play a little further than just that first layer of fiction does. Uh, yeah, totally. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, we're, we care about the cast, right? Yeah. Cause we're, we're Star Trek watchers and we've seen them and we talk about them all the time on $20 a day. We talk about them all <laughs> the time on a podcast. Um, so what is the purpose of all those other characters? That we don't see all the time. Right. And it depends on the episode. But in this one, I think, as you say, the purpose is to communicate the genre. Like, here here are all the tropes that you associate with this kind of story. There's also a playfulness to their references to specific things in our real world, like other fictional things, right? Like, the item yeah. that is, <laughs> you know, the Maltese Falcon or whatever, right? The, the, the big goodbye is a reference to both Big Sleep and Long Goodbye, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So communicating that quickly with these big, broad characters is totally fine. Also, because we're not going to see them again. So why wait? Yeah. And I think that's something to pull out for role-playing in particular, but also for, for fiction if you're kind of learning about a character as you write it or building a character as you write it. There's this sense sometimes of, I need to do a bunch of groundwork before I can get to the good stuff. Right. And especially if you have a limited format, either a limited time format or a limited mm -hmm. space for the fiction to to exist in for your audience to experience it in get to the good stuff yeah here are people interacting with a story that that runs on a certain set of rails that you right. already have an association of how that kind of fiction works it's not telling you pay attention to the dixon hill story it's really interesting that's not the point the point is the star trek story needs the dixon hill story to it needs you to fill in a bunch of holes for it, but those are also not the things that matter. What matters is how the two realities end up coming together. One thing I really liked about this episode was seeing the both the characters and also, I think, the actors really having fun with what they were doing. And I think that sense of fun and kind of wonder and whimsy is so important to... I mean, just liking what you're doing, but like, <laughs> like generally, but I, I, again, I think it can get lost in, in play sometimes and in trying to put something together narratively and you're paying a lot of attention to structure and pacing and stuff like that. And it's kind of like, sometimes you just want to have some fun with it and that's okay. Um, all right. Well, with that, we will, uh, I don't know, set a new heading and engage, uh, onto our next destination. Um, we're not going to say that, that there will never be another $20 a day episode, but, uh, you can certainly join us next time for our triumphant return to the Rockford Files. Make your thoughts fruitful and your words eloquent.